Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Stephen Kent is a sociology professor and an adjunct professor in the Interdisciplinary Program of Religious Studies at the University of Alberta in Canada. He researches and teaches courses on groups variously called sects and cults and alternative religions. He's also been involved in a lot of high-profile court cases concerning controversial groups in Canada and the United States, the United Kingdom, and has given invited testimony before a federal German parliamentary committee investigating sex and psychological groups. He's been quoted in hundreds of media accounts around the world, and he's also studied a lot of anti-government movements and polygamy and Scientology and brainwashing and religious-based child sexual abuse. And so, as you can imagine, our conversation went in a lot of different directions. The last time we started talking, he was starting to talk just at the end about what's happening around the world, specifically in China. And then we pick up the conversation there. And he's able to continue talking about things happening in other places in the world, too, and a little bit about what we can do about some of the movements that bring out the worst in people and possibly how to turn that around. I look forward to having you hear the second part of my conversation with Stephen today. Here's Stephen now. And so what else have you heard about in China? Because it's not something I'm as familiar with. It's very frustrating to hear about and also how we're not really hearing about it. And so, you know, there should be much more education about it and exposure, but maybe that's on purpose that we're not getting all this information. Well, my understanding of China is it takes the long view. It's a a civilization uh, with a several thousand year history. Consequently, if it takes 100 years, 200 years to get a policy established, uh, Chinese officials have that perspective. So look at what's happened around Tibet, for example. Now, Tibet was a feudal society, no doubt about it. It was uh, hasn't driven uh, the people who work for the establishment and maintenance of, of, of the Buddhist lamas. There's no doubt it was feudal. Uh, after Chinese uh, invasion, there have been numerous protests by, by Tibetans, but gradually China has moved in Chinese citizens in, into Tibetan areas, established a railway, and then very slowly. You know, the Dalai Lama is uh, quite old now. I forget his age. I think he's in his 80s. Uh, there's already uh, talk about what's going to happen when he dies. Almost certainly the typical Tibetan Trans, transmission of finding a new Dalai Lama cannot go on. Uh, the Chinese government established a second tier leader called the Panchen Lama, uh, who was a Chinese government appointee, mm-hmm. different from what the Tibetans had established. So already the Chinese government was trying to uh, align the Tibetan religion with, China, with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and it's uh, hard to see that, that in the long run, uh, Tibetan will be able to maintain any sort of uh, viable independence. Right. And what I'm also noticing, and maybe because I, I try to 
see what's also happening that gives me some sort of hope um, is that there has been uh, a lot of uh, inventiveness in the part of students of high school, elementary school students, people who for their science projects are coming up with ways to clean the oceans and to clean the air. And, and so there is a groundswell of people wanting to be able to do something and finding out ways, not dealing with, you know, big business, but just, you know, being smart and, and finding another way to, to access some sort of way to clean some of the, the damage and some of what we've done. And, and of course, there are people who say it's just too little, too late. And others will say, you know, there's going to be more of that because you already see that energy starting, which is a really wonderful thing to see. If I could take your point, and I absolutely agree with it, but spin it around. The frustration may come because a lot of people, especially younger people, realize that we have technological solutions right now that really could make big dents in, in the climate change issues, but the politicians in many environments are not giving the, the, the structural space to implement those, those changes. Hence, that frustration could lead to these significant social and political protests. Uh, okay. So I remember um, years ago, there was a show on TV that was, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but a person went underground under cities, like Rome underground. And oh, yes. And it was fascinating. Uh, and then he went uh, underground under downtown Los Angeles and found a subway system and a, and a place that was akin to a Penn Station, um, just with tracks and still with some of the kind of Art Deco writing and and uh, tiles and and there were, it was a whole system that had been put in place in Los Angeles and then you could see that a track still existed at least the beginning and then there was a brick wall. <laughs> and the tracks had ended and and there was a lot of talk about why that happened and it was the car industry and the oil industry and you know everyone sort of got bought off and and Los Angeles could have been a very different place um and didn't then have to deal with years and years of smog and then trying to take care of the smog and it's much better now but still still um yeah when you see that actually there was something already there that then got stopped. That's a whole other level of frustration, you know, and you just, you, you get reminded about what you're up against. And that's, that's a very hard thing. That's a very hard thing the powerlessness, you know, and we deal a lot with that in our field of people suddenly finding themselves in situations where they didn't realize they were rescinding their power, but suddenly they are and how to, how to get it back and how to have a voice and how to take care of what you want to take care of. And, what you think you need or what you think the world needs. You know, again, a wor uh, worst case scenario is that Samuel Hunting Huntington's clash of, of civilizations. And, and in that clash, uh, there will be pe um, uh, people who get, get caught up in it. And what worries me is to the extent that there, there might be, that there will be examples of cultural clash, it'll feed the white racists. It'll feed the alt-right. The alt-right will see these clashes and say, see, we told you so. Uh, these people are not like us. Uh, you know, we will not let them replace us, to paraphrase Charlottesville. Mm. And so I see some real problems 
um, coming down the pike. Mm-hmm. That's are these proje- uh, projections of uh, uh, Pew Research did, did these projections uh, for 2050 about what religion is going to look like in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I'm not Mr. Optimist. Of course, we may not make it to 2050 if you believe in climate change. But if we do, it's going to be a very complicated world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very complicated. And I, yeah, I tend to think that we're going to be around for a lot longer. That's just my way of thinking about it. Uh, but I wanted just to talk about the alt-right because it's something that is on a lot of people's minds. And it's something that we previously gone over to talk about. And I'm just wondering what you think could be the response to that. What helps to temper it if possible? And and I guess what I'm getting at is that case by case, sometimes people will come to me and they will say, I got involved in a movement and it made me feel powerful and it made me feel a part of something. But after a while, I realized it wasn't really me. And so sometimes it's because they felt connected or because they felt like they um, mm, they were somehow um, given this sort of superpower uh, that felt really, really wonderful. Like they were floating above other people, sort of having it together and looking down at everyone else. But then, yeah, there are people who will leave it and say it sort of brought out the worst in me. Um, which is what happens, and I and I see now with people within certain governments and and within cults, people will say, you know, I I gossiped about people because I knew that was going to please the leader, or I abused someone because it put a smile on my controller's face or whatever else. So I'm just wondering if there is something that could help sort of bring people into this space of feeling that there are other things that could make them feel powerful and not just feeling superior to others? It's a good question. It's a difficult one to answer. Uh, I have some thoughts. I don't have uh, solutions. Uh, As a general pattern, one of the explanations of differences for the increase of atheism in, in Western European countries versus America is that the the political uh, parties in Western in, in in Western Europe take care of their people more. Mm-hmm. They've got a social welfare net. Uh, people are not afraid of what will happen to them when they get sick. And of course, in America, there's this huge debate over socialized medicine, so-called, and, and whatnot. Uh, it, so people need religion and need a sense of hope more in in circumstances when they they fear what will happen to them not in the afterlife but in this life now of course um being involved in sectarian groups and for some extent of political groups give people a sense of being part of a mass movement Mm -hmm. a movement that that really goes beyond time and space and part of what happens is that uh these people often come from Difficult backgrounds, uh, uh, and the the involvement in these groups becomes a, a form of community. Yeah. Uh, and so, if if governments cut out community programs for kids, you know, cut out I don't know the basketball activities and music right. and after uh, after school activities. There's been cuts to educational funding and so on. 
kids go out there. Some many of these kids are lost, but they join gangs. Mm-hmm. In many ways, the uh, alt right is kind of gang. Now, of course, there also uh, can be legitimate monitoring activities by governments. Uh, depends upon the country. So, so for example, Canada has stricter hate law speech regulations than the U.S. Now, the free speech uh, emphasis in the U.S. gives a, a wide latitude about what people can get away with, less so in Canada. But there have been government governmental interventions against some of these, these websites mm-hmm. and talk shows. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever that line is, when they cross it, and some of them do, they've got to get pulled down. There's got to be legitimate monitoring of these groups. Now, um, once this... Inf- Conspiracy theories have become much easier these days. Uh, I remember as a teenager going to a local community and there was a, a right-wing conspiracy bookstore here. It was little, it was small. I just stumbled upon it. Uh, now, three clicks on the internet and you're in into... Uh, Everything. What seems to happen is that when it, people get, will get one alternative uh, series of beliefs and they... They then network with someone who holds them and says, do you also know? And so one individual who enters into networks pretty soon has a whole variety of of alternative uh, beliefs about them. The dangerous ones not only are political involving racism and so on, but also medical. The the pseudo-medicine that's that's going on right now is just frightening. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you look on the the, uh, groups that, that, uh, religious groups, that lobby the U.S. government right now. Easy to find. Uh, one of the groups that, that has a lobbying presence in Washington is Christian Science. Mm-hmm. Trying to get and then maintain uh, religious exemptions yeah. uh, for people who don't get their, get their children medical treatment. Christians mm-hmm. about, you know, forms of health food that make medical claims and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and vaccines, anti-vaxxers, and all of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. New York now, the restriction came about saying if you want to, if you, if you want to keep your children in, in school, you've they've got to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So some governments can have very strict procedures, and in the process, uh, they start to educate parents. It's not just merely the imposition of, of an external law, mm-hmm. but educating parents about what those positions are. Uh, in reality and truth, um, mm-hmm. I'm hesitant to go into areas I don't know a lot about. Uh, let me just say that I have questions about unregulated, well, minimally regulated public education, or, or private education. Okay. Private schools, religion, okay. uh, schools that are, are supposed to meet state curricula about education, but it sounds like a lot of them just aren't. Mm-hmm. So keeping kids out from public schools concerns me, but then putting kids in public schools that have restrictions about the teaching of science, uh-huh. and that's not only on the physical science, but also social science. Yes, that worries me. Right. I mean, it's hard when you when you've done so much research and there's so much that you see. It's hard to not be worried about all of it. And I think that, you know, going back to the sort of the, the anti-vaxxers, um, 
I mean, I, I'm not necessarily going to say that one way is better than another. I can just say that I had my kids vaccinated, but what I, I think is true about things that you think are affecting people you love all the more so is that you're going to have this confirmation bias that you're going to find the proof that supports your position. And then you're going to be stuck with it because you're going to say, see, but it says this here. And then other people are going to say, it says the opposite here. And it said the opposite 10 times more, but it doesn't matter because it said it once here. And so, you know, you're kind of working against, but especially when it has to do with people and their children, I think, keeping their children safe, making sure their children go to heaven, what it, you know, it shifts how people are going to be operating and also that what they think is they're doing for their children, for their safety or for their soul is something that someone else sees as neglect. And so, you know, that's, that's always going to be where we're at odds with each other. And that's a problem. One of the debates that seems to go on amongst political liberals in the U.S. is the extent to which they should appear on Fox News. <sighs> Elizabeth Warren, you know, and because, well, she got... Uh, heavily ridiculed. I think at some point she said, I'm not going on. Um, other people say we have to go on. Mm-hmm. Got to present alternative views in that environment or else people just stay in the bubble, in the, in the uh, info bubble mm-hmm. they're in. And so you know, getting out this information, doing the podcast like you're doing is a way to get information out there and one doesn't know who's going to listen, who's going to watch, who's going to want to turn it on just out of curiosity. Yeah. Oh, um, and education is, is crucial. You can, what, take a horse to water. You can't make a drink. Mm-hmm. Have the information out there. You can't force people to, to listen to it and read it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the, the cult information people may benefit from trying to get information into businesses. Um, uh, in, into government, into the legal system. It is clear that these groups, some of these groups are lobbying those areas. See, the, the cult information people do not have lobby lobbyists in Washington. Some of these groups do. Uh, you know, the concerns I'm hearing now are about, you know, multi-level marketing. Yes. That's a business environment. Uh, uh, when I first started, well, Early on in my work in, say, the early 80s, we were getting a lot of accounts about um, um, consulting groups going on in, in, going on into major businesses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that, in the end, caused wreak havoc in some of these companies. So, the, and now, uh, just a few days ago, my uh, university department chair spoke to me about a friend of hers um, in uh, Minneapolis who's involved in one of these uh, business guru types mm-hmm. with the books and the systems and it's tied into religion when you go. And so um, the business marketing areas and the, the ideo- ideological spin that goes on there. But, you know, I'm, I'm an academic. I teach, I write. Mm-hmm. I'm not a lobbyist. I'm, I don't... Uh, and. Uh, you know, we don't go, but we need to do outreach. We do. Now, there are some people, we have allies in various legal professions. Mm-hmm. We have some allies, and you know, they have ins into uh, programs to 
uh, to influence lawyers, influence judges, and so on. We should make, take advantage of those. Yeah. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the infrastructure that, that some of these groups have in order to convey a message about rational thinking, logic, mm. information, and so on. We're, we're at a disadvantage. Yeah. And, and I think also that communities at large are at a disadvantage too, because there's so many people who get involved in groups that turned out, that turn out to not be good groups, but in order to be involved, you had to sign over your rights or sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, there are plenty of people who have contacted me who were in MLMs, multi-level marketing groups, and we're going to be on the podcast and then said, actually, no, now I'm too scared. Someone heard that I might be on and, you know, they're, say, they say they're going to sue and it's harassment, libel, whatever. And it, it shouldn't be because you're just talking about your experience, but come to find out people have were given a stack of forms to sign so that they could then buy their products and use up all their money and destroy their marriage and whatever else. Um, but now they can't talk about it. So there isn't enough information out there um, and that's why I'm making sure to highlight it, that if you've had a bad experience with a multi-level marketing group or another group and you're not hearing it talked about, you're not the only one who has experienced it. It's just that other people are not at liberty to share their stories. I was involved in a court case that did not go to trial, but the person had signed a non-disclosure agreement. And from memory, I think I was asked in deposition whether this person signed it voluntarily. And I said, well, yes. And what I was thinking was, you know, she didn't have a gun. She did not have a gun to her head. But afterwards, I got thinking about the whole process. And uh, a non-disclosure agreement, people sign under the assumption that what they will undergo in the group is going to be legal. Mm. The non-disclosure agreement um, really protects the group from individuals exposing illegalities and harm. Moreover. Uh, I don't think you people can necessarily, well, it's a difficult issue for me, and you have to talk to lawyers about these issues, is people all the time sign non-disclosure agreements in, uh, in receipt of, of payments. Mm -hmm. uh, so people will, will be abused, uh, launch court cases, and then have an out-of-court settlement so the use of non-disclosure agreements in the first instance is clearly manipulative. Mm -hmm. At least the one group that I know of, uh, uh, when people go to leave and they're, they're presented with a non-disclosure agreement, the whole environment is set up to intimidate. The group has a camera, focus on the person. There's lawyers in there. The person uh, has had... Uh, in this case, her entire background examined uh, the doctrines about her in the group. They, they're all written down in front of her. Uh, and so she signs it. There's no gun to her head, but the social pressure is designed to intimidate. It, what these, these non-disclosure agreements may not be valid is because uh, of the coer coercive nature. Right. Of Under duress, I think. If I, if I go to, to buy a car, I can go to the car dealership. The car dealership will give me a contract. I can then take it to a lawyer right. and have it looked over. Mm -hmm. uh, these groups, they, 
do not, they cannot have their own attorneys look over these non-disclosure agreements before they sign them. Mm-hmm. That, but people are scared. Mm-hmm. And just because they would not hold up, mm-hmm. there's no uh, prevention from the group to, to sue them for, for breaking the contract. Right. right. In one instance, this is extraordinary. A uh, person signed one of these non-disclosure agreements and then a year or two later, both of them, both sides are saying bad things about the other. The group sued the person for not for breaking the, the agreement. And in court submissions, it actually said, well, the agreement did not limit us, the group, from making comments about that person. Uh, it's just that the person could, admit, could not make comments about us. What a shock. Yes. Uh-huh. And uh, the, this... This guy lost the case. Yeah. The, now he lives outside the U.S. He cannot go in, into American territory for fear of getting arrested. It's incredible. I know people who have sued pe- the groups that have destroyed them and uh, have lost. Uh, and it it is so troubling. It's so troubling how the cults uh, and the people who are causing the abuse are more protected than the victims of it. But I, I guess what's so interesting too is when you talk about just that scene of being in a room and being filmed and the intimidation and, and having a team of attorneys, I guess it's always good to check and see if none of those attorneys are yours, <laughs> then you leave. <laughs> you know, I know that we need to wrap up because you, you have a busy day and, um, and probably a couple other hundred people you need to talk to today about other things, but there are so many ways to approach this, and I guess, you know, in in big ways and in small ways. So uh, my doing therapy or the podcast is, you know, working with people one-on-one or in families or a couple thousand people or however many people listen to the podcast on a weekly basis. But still, I, I look at the kind of the, the one-on-one ways and how powerful they are and if we can build on that, like with the way you... Uh, approach things with your students and um, offer them information and offer them a way to think about things critically. And then the exponential impact that that has because they take that to their friends and their families. I'm thinking about sometimes the solutions like with global warming and all that can seem to elude us. But then sometimes there are also these little moments that are so powerful that were easy fixes like when I was studying for a semester in the 80s in Liverpool, and it was a very depressed city at the time. It's different now. It was just starting to kind of get itself together, and it's an amazing place now. I haven't been able to be back, but I've seen photos. But there were a lot of kids just hanging out on the street and, you know, breaking into homes because something to do. And also because they didn't have the money to pay for groceries and other things, and they had to get their energy out. And so I volunteered at something called the Liverpool Council for Voluntary Service. And it was like a boys and girls club. And so these kids had a place to go and sit and a couple of old couches that it looked like there was always a yard sale, like it was from someone's house and someone's (laughs) office. Um, And they they could play basketball, they could do whatever, but it was a place to go and it was a place to belong and and a place to get something to eat. And... um, And in those little moments, you could see that it changed the course of someone's life. And that person was not going to jail, was not going to have a record. They were going to have friends. Um, They were going to have this reminder that they're adults, that there's a community that cares about them. So, you know, I, I value all of those 
all of those little interventions because I think they're very powerful and we need to think more, much more about how to provide that for the world so that there isn't just sort of this rampant disconnection and powerlessness that causes people then to get involved in these alt-right groups or you know, these sort of conspiracy theories in order to feel powerful and in order to feel protected. This is a big problem now that people uh, form their senses of self and allegiances online. Mm-hmm. Not real groups. They're not they're not around real people. They're they're typing. Yeah. And in that environment, uh, accelerants occur. Someone says something and it just kicks off. And and one of the tricks that some of these high demand uh, religious groups do is they do form networks that fill up people's lives seven seven nights a week. But they're all in the context of their uh, their ideology. And what we need is people to be involved in diverse groups so that they have one identity here, but a different identity there. Mm-hmm. Group of people with beliefs and activities here and different one there. The local communities really have a role to play and the local community's role has been diminishing in recent years. It's even to the extent now, this worries me, uh, there, may, there seem to be brain changes going on for being online all yeah. the time. Uh, there's a worldwide development of in, increased, increased nearsightedness. We're not sure why. Maybe from being looking yeah. at all the time and mm-hmm. your eyes not focused on trees in the distance and so on. Mm-hmm. In my country, uh, we've just legalized marijuana a year or two ago. And when it just happened, I drove, I was going to a store and drove past one of the marijuana stores there was a long line, and it looked to me like all the kids were, they were kids, they were 18. Well, we know that the brain doesn't stop developing until about 25 years old. And the research seems fairly clear that even a small amount of marijuana smoking or developing brain can have IQ impacts. Those mm-hmm. In a country that's trying to do um, what's probably the right thing about decriminalizing, legalizing marijuana to reduce get people out of jail right. and punish this kind of activity. Yes. There are what sociologists would say unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. You've mm-hmm. got people probably with lowering IQs who are who are on the, the internet with heavy usage, a lot of whom are young men. And as we know, young men are the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even on a global scale, Rachel, uh, the deficiency, the difference between the number of, of of men versus women is huge mm-hmm. of gynocide and gendercide in various countries against young girls. Yeah. And so there's there's a def- deficiency of a, several hundred million uh, women, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. A bunch of young men who have no poor job opportunities and no chance of involvement of family or in- intimacy. It's a powder cake. Mm-hmm. It is a powder, right. It's a, it's a lack of a fully developed prefrontal cortex power keg. It's, it, it is, you're right that I do agree that there are people in jail who should not be in jail for the, for, you know, marijuana related, whatever, or that they drove the car and well, while their boyfriend was picking up whatever from their dealer and they're in jail for 20 years. I mean, it's ridiculous. The, those kinds of punishments when, uh, I mean, in comparison to 
what punishments are for other things that are really horrible. Um, but you're right that there are people, and I think this is probably true, just when there's this sort of pendulum swing, it goes to this other extreme, and then you're going to see the lines out in front of all of these pot places. And, and, and of course, then there are the people who I remember when I was a teenager, they're, you know, friends who would get stoned and, and were sure they were better drivers while they were stoned. And they were so not. <laughs> and so, you know, like it, you just think that you have these powers and that you have this ability and it's not there. And in fact, now with these studies, like you're saying, there's diminished capacity over the long term. And but the problem is that when people are young, they don't necessarily think about the long term and they don't care about the long term and they don't believe the study anyway and they want to get stoned. So that it's it is hard and it's hard when you just have this sort of wide brush where you make something legal without having things in place to help people know how to do it safely for them for now and for later. There's a there are a lot of angry young men out there. If you look at many of the of the uh, the shooters in the U.S., a lot of them are fair to young men. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a rage that has to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is in 30 years you can interview me again. Uh-huh. Tell me how all my my pessimism was wrong. I'm going to mark it on my calendar. I'm putting yeah, it right now. Thirty five. years, uh huh. <laughs> to this day, thirty years from now, yeah, I know. I t- I tend to I tend to think in a more positive way, and maybe that's being Pollyanna, but it you know it's it's sort of the way I'm wired. But I it's still it it's still not without knowing that you have to take action. You can't just sit back and know other people are going to take care of it or somehow magically it's going to be solved. So you taking action is wonderful. Yeah, and you are right. One never knows how changing one person's life will have ripples. Um, I mean, all I can say is that sometimes I've had people who've taken classes with me years earlier get back in touch. Mm. What I saw, you know about, so you never know. Very powerful. Thank yeah. I I appreciate your your time your insights uh, on uh, talking about cults, but also on a global scale and teaching me a lot about what's happening in other places and just to be aware what's what's happening that we're not finding out about and it's very important to know about, but also getting into the what can you do about it part, which is so important. We need people, Rachel, who speak languages, uh, who've grown up in communities who have access to places that uh, a lot of us don't have access because there are and will continue to be issues about manipulation and and control, often religiously based, sometimes connected to politics and terrorism that have to get addressed. And they can get get addressed uh, by building upon what people know in the call to information. Hmm. The issues will be somewhat different, but there's going to be a lot of overlap. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's why our interests have taken us into these other places because there is overlap. Uh, And also just even talking about politics because, you know, the cults did not invent these things. They just utilize them. Right. Okay. I'll say one last thing. Uh, A movement exists in the anti-terrorist networks about de-radicalizing people. Yeah, okay. And I heard these things and I thought, uh, you ever heard of exit counseling, deprogramming, all those? Mm-hmm. Um, 
they've rediscovered the wheel on, on these issues. And I and some others have been trying uh, in various degrees to get two sides to talk to one another. We have people like yourself who have been exit counseling for years. Yeah. You know? And so there's going to be a lot of carryover. So we can contribute. Uh, they have to reach out. We have to connect with them somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And human trafficking. And, you know, there's so many places that are, it's too big for us to get into now, but you're right. The the way in or the way to help people out, uh, it there could be different kinds of things you need to add for that particular population or their particular experiences. But the overall sense of how to undo the control is not something that uh, is unknown. And there are a lot of people who predate me uh, who were already developing the techniques that I'm utilizing. And so they're out there. And people just need, I think, to have the humility to know that it, the information might be out there and it might come from somewhere else and someone else. And so they need to access it and it doesn't have to come from them. But that's also what happens sometimes with politicians. They need to, they need to be the ones to have invented that wheel. Uh, and so then they don't access what's already out there. So um, that that's actually what's nice also in a positive way about the internet, because then you can access what's out there in a, in a good way, in a preventative yes. way. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, thank you, Rachel. This has been uh, informative for me and a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, pleasure to speak with you too. And nice to see you. It's been a long time. Hope to see you again soon. Okay, so long. Thank you. One more thing before the one more thing before you go. I heard from a couple of people who usually put on murder mystery parties where uh, it's sort of like Clue, but party style. And they have this setting where they tell a story and they have everyone try to figure out who did it and how it all worked out and how it all played out. And one of them had heard the episode called Home Invasion from this podcast, and they decided to use that episode instead of building a story about a murder mystery, even though luckily there was no murder involved in this mystery. But they said that they started playing the episode and everyone sat around and then they stopped and they asked people how they thought it was going to play out and what was going to happen next. I'm actually going to have an update about the family that I talked about. I'm going to have an update by next week. So I'm going to give you that. And uh, in about a month or so, I'm going to do another episode where I'm going to be talking the whole time like I did for Home Invasion. Hope you don't get tired of hearing my voice. But this time it's going to be about narcissism in particular. Not that that home invasion episode wasn't about narcissism. It really was about the person who invaded these people's home. But this one specifically is going to be about how to detect narcissism and what happens if you're in a relationship with a narcissist and how to break free. So I look forward to having you hear that again in about a month or so. And next week, again. I'm going to be hearing from the couple who's going to give me an update on how they're doing. And I'll be sure to let you know for those of you who have felt sort of close to them because you heard some of their story. And now, one more thing before you go. So today, when we talked to Stephen Kent for part two of his conversation with me, it was really important to be able to talk to him about 
all the things that he has studied and also his vision of what is happening around the world and his vision of the future. And while we see it in a particularly similar way, and also we have some differing views here and there, he used a word that I thought was fascinating and it really caught my attention. And the word was accelerant. There are many moments in our lives that are accelerants. When someone gets us riled up, when someone pushes us physically for no reason, when someone pushes our buttons emotionally just because they know it will get a rise out of us, or when politicians stir up trouble intentionally in order to further their own agenda, in order to cause a distraction and get people fighting with each other and fighting against each other so they don't notice that they are all and we are all being played. I want to tell you a little bit about my experiences this week. Some of you have already heard about them who know me personally. The experience was, I think, as a result of negative and dangerous accelerants. So while my family and I have gotten used to having a guard needing to be posted outside our synagogue and outside the school connected to the synagogue, this week, on my way into high holiday services for the Jewish New Year, walking in between my mother and my daughter, we had a very sobering moment. Because of an increase in tension and anger and infighting, not only did we need to walk past the usual guard gate, but we needed to go through security. We needed to have our belongings screened, show our IDs, empty our pockets, and pass by armed guards, as though we were boarding a plane or entering a prison. All because of the synagogue bombing and an increase in anti-Semitic attacks and a dredging up of very old and close-minded hatred. This synagogue that actually my mother is a past president of was founded on the ideas of social justice and equality, has a counseling center that's open to anyone, signs people up for blood donations and bone marrow donations and knits hats and shawls for people going through cancer treatments, is inclusive for all families, all sexual orientations and gender identities, has a program I taught in for many years for children and adults with special needs, and a food bank for anyone needing food for their families where my daughter has helped to stock the shelves. And it had a rabbi who started an organization for refugees in Sudan and outlying areas, and a group of people and the clergy who visit those in the hospital or who mourn with those who are bereaved. Sadly, the fires of anti-Semitism have been stoked again by, as I see it, our government and the people who are emboldened and reactionary and angry and usually angry about other things, but take it out on their typical scapegoats. Many people who are accelerants and many social movements that are accelerants are catalyst for us and for people all over the world good and bad. And in very dangerous situations where things are already nearly flammable, already a tinderbox, people need actually a very small incendiary device, a shift in a belief, an introduction of an idea, a myth, a person who is charismatic and fear-mongering and power-hungry to tip things past the point of safety and past the point of any sense at all. 
when people sometimes ask me the question, that's all it took? Well, it's never that that is all it took. It was a cultivation of a lot of emotion and a lot of anger and a lot of fear. Often accelerants are thought of in the negative, but I work hard to remember that there are also a number of accelerants that are positive. The people who are social agitators when they feel there is an injustice, a real injustice. The people who activate others and make them feel that it's important to take a stand, to follow their conscience and make a difference. And the people who help to boost your self-esteem so that you act on your own behalf and keep yourself safe or motivate you to follow your own dreams and see your commitments through to the end so that you can have a sense of achievement and self-confidence. There are always heroes, people who become famous and people who help from behind the scenes, but they make a difference. And sometimes they use similar kind of techniques to those who will use those techniques to cause damage and dissension. But if they use those techniques to get people's attention, to bring people together, to right a wrong, to turn things around, that's fine with me. The population I often work with, though, has been affected by or damaged by or influenced by negative or dangerous kinds of people who push them to believe things that are destructive without finding out if those ideas are true. And then they're coaxed and prodded and pressured into acting on those beliefs. Like the people who are made to feel that their parents did something awful to them in order for the person controlling them now to have full control over them without them having any divided allegiance or even the wish to go back home. And then they accuse their families of doing monstrous things to them that their families would never have dreamt of doing. And they take a stand sometimes politically because that's the side that their leader or controller wants them to take or demands that they take. In those moments, where people think they're acting on some newfound strength or principled behavior or cause or belief, they actually don't realize, I think because they might not want to or they're too close to it to notice, that they're not acting in a strong way. They're actually acting out of passivity. They are unfortunately being used as sheep following the shepherd. They're not doing their own research and finding out if they are right about their position or they're not questioning the person who is teaching them what to think and how to believe and how to act. And they're letting themselves kind of be whipped into a frenzy. This is just the guise of strength, a very false bravado. And when you act without knowing why and without understanding the consequences, and when it's based on just pure closed-mindedness or hatred or paranoia or just because someone told you to, I tend to think of that as ready, fire, aim as opposed to ready, aim, fire. And when things are not in the right order, ready, aim, fire, you are then blindly following. You are doing damage without forethought, without knowing who you are aiming at or why. You are acting with your body without activating your mind. The time we're living in now feels like a time of great agitation and acceleration a playground for the id, for people who work others into a froth where self-control and civility are discouraged because they are seen as a weakness. There's something so vital to me, which is to be able to feel empowered and to speak your mind and to make a difference, but still rise above, 
to not just stir the pot because you can, because you like the power and the control. So going back to the image of needing to walk through that TSA style security screening just to enter the synagogue this week to enjoy the new year, I think beyond my mother and my daughter who walked in on either side of me, I think about the little boy in front of me who was wearing his little clip-on tie and had a handful of Cheerios. And in front of him and his family was a woman who was 93, who was a Holocaust survivor, a person who has seen more than anyone should and has experienced more than anyone should have to. And the little guy, a person new to this world, who should be able to feel safe and good and who has to be introduced, unfortunately, to the idea at the tender age of three that there are people who hate him, who have never met him. So let's all hope and work towards a world that does not accelerate the division and foment the anger, but rather works towards finding a way to have us all share this space on this planet by helping us see what is the same about us, as Maya Angelou talks about, rather than what is different. And to end, I want to end with a quote by Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. She makes it sound so easy, doesn't she? And maybe, if one day the people who are devoted to having us hate each other see that it's a game we're not willing to play anymore just because they tell us to, it will actually be easy. Let's hope that happens. Actually, let's do more than just hope. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel.